Jody Wilson-Raybould spoke her truth to the Parliamentary Justice Committee and in the process made some pretty damning allegations about the Prime Minister and other high-ranking officials. But what ripple effects will the former Justice Minister's testimony have? I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. We look at why the SNC-Lavalin affair could be so damaging to the Liberal government, where the issue could go next, and how this could factor into the fall election. Before we get to the latest goings-on in Ottawa, I just want to remind you that we are on all major podcasting platforms, Google and Apple included, and you can head on over and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Oh, and don't forget to leave a comment and a review and help us get the word out there. John Iveson is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Post Media and a national columnist for the National Post. So, John, Jody Wilson-Raybould kind of unleashed a flood of uh, controversy for the Liberal government last week with her testimony before the Justice Committee. What does this scandal say about the Trudeau government, do you think? Well, I think it's interesting that there now seems to be a maybe a bubble has burst. I think there's a lot of pressure being building up of people who are frustrated with the, the Trudeau government over one thing or another. And, and I, you know, I can imagine out West it's the way that they've handled the oil patch, uh, the pipelines, environmental regulations. Um, among younger people, perhaps it's about the broken promises on electoral reform. For other people, it's the broken promises on deficits. But I think that all that pressure was building up, and it now seems to have just the dam seems to have burst with this story. You know, on the available facts, it's not. Uh, it's a very Canadian scandal. You know, there's no sex involved, and nobody's made any money. But for whatever reason, it has galvanised public opinion, and you know, people are now reaching for their pitchforks and torches, and and they're really gunning for Trudeau. I suspect even people who, when it comes to the entering the polling booth in October, they'll look at the other two guys and go, but they'll look at them and say, well, we're going to stick with Trudeau, but we're not happy. I mean, that the enthusiasm with which uh, greeted the Liberal government in October 2015 has just evaporated. Can this scandal be looked at in isolation? I know you mentioned some things that people are mad at the Trudeau government about, but there have been some other issues that have cropped up over the last couple of years that don't necessarily paint the prime minister in a good light. Can people look at what's going on here on its own, or do you think people are kind of building it up as part of a larger whole? I, I think it speaks to a pattern of behavior. I mean, I think that this was the government that was going to do things differently, and it was going to be open and transparent, and politics was going to be turned on its head. And I think people have found out that it's very hard to do things differently, that Canadian politics is the art of the possible and not that much is possible. You know, I mean, Justin Trudeau has made a rod for his own back in many ways because I think there's an element of hubris about him personally. We've, we've seen this when it comes to the Aga Khan trip, you know, that the rules are, are there, but they're meant for other people. So I think this, this scandal is consistent with things that have gone before it. And the hypocrisy, you know, the idea that this, this was all going to be so much better and the the sort of grubby electoral politics which uh, which tinted or tainted uh, previous governments was not going to taint the Liberal government and and of course it has because you know I think that uh, many of us who've been watching politics for a long time realise that all these promises were just so much hot air when they were made from when the Globe and Mail first published their story about this inappropriate pressure that was being applied to Jody Wilson Raybould and to when she 
actually stepped into the Justice Committee room uh, and testified. Do you think that for a lot of people, there was the controversy was kind of nebulous? It was hard to pin down as to what the scandal was. Do you think that Ms. Wilson-Raybould's testimony helped crystallize it or make this easier for people to understand? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think the Prime Minister and his team have done an appalling job in the interim. I mean, the story breaks. She can't speak until she comes into the committee room. He has how many weeks? Two, three weeks to to get his story right. And it just sounded like so many platitudes that there was just the story shifted. There was no real substance to it. And then she comes in and, and provides a level of detail and a, a kind of frank account, her truth, as she so, said. And it's not a pretty picture for the prime minister. You know, the idea that veiled threats were leveled against her, you know, it's pretty undeniable that she was shifted from her job. And I, I, I'd love to hear the alternative version if it wasn't because of this, of her refusing to do the bidding of the prime minister over SNC. So, it, you know, mm-hmm. I am, I'm writing a column uh, today cautioning that we haven't heard from all the witnesses yet. And our system of jurisprudence means that we should hear from all the witnesses before we accept any version of events. But it has to be said, her testimony is pretty convincing. And, uh, you know, we had already heard the testimony of Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council. It's a very contrasting and inconsistent version of the phone call which they had on December 19th, he's now going to come back to the committee because I think we do need to ask the questions about, you know, you said the Prime Minister was anxious. She said the Prime Minister was going to get this deal for SNC one way or another, and you were on a collision course with him. You know, I think that some of that inconsistency needs to be uh, ironed out. And then we're going to hear from Gerald Butts. Now, according to the the, uh, former Justice Minister, he was quoted as saying that any solution was going to involve some level of interference. Now, it will be interesting to hear from Mr. Butts on Wednesday whether he said that, and if he did, what did he mean by it? Were you surprised to see that uh, Gerald Butts uh, volunteered himself or or put himself forward to be able to testify this week? No, I wasn't surprised he was going to testify. I was surprised he resigned. I mean, even the Conservatives weren't asking for him to resign. So it's still not clear to me why he felt the need to resign. I guess he probably knew that she was going to use this quote, which at the end of the day, from the meetings that he had, he had a meeting with her on December the 5th, and then he had a meeting with her chief of staff on December the 18th. The only really damning testimony involving him thus far to me is that one statement. And, And I think it it will be interesting to see what he says about that. But I think the far more disconcerting uh, inconsistencies are between her version of the conversation on December 19th with the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, and his version of events. It seems hard to reconcile mm-hmm. those two conversations. One of the things that Butts will likely testify to, as you said, is the conversation between him and Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, and then Jody Wilson-Raybould's Chief of Staff. Um, Ms. Wilson-Raybould testified last week uh, to text messages she got from her Chief of Staff uh, after this meeting or to the nature of this meeting with Gerald Butts. The bulk of his testimony will probably seek to counter that, right? Like, as, as of right now, we're dealing with kind of hearsay about that meeting because the Justice Minister wasn't there. This is why I'm kind of... Uh 
puzzled why he resigned because the only real allegation against him is that is based on a, a second-hand conversation that uh, the Justice Minister wasn't at. And I'm wondering whether the, the, the Chief of Staff, Jessica Prince, was taking notes at the time or whether she recorded it, or how do we know that her, her uh, recollection of the conversation is accurate? So I think that that is, that is interesting. I mean, more compelling to me was Wilson Raybould's testimony about conversations she actually took part in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there seems to be less room for, for error in those. The other one interesting uh, piece of testimony she gave was the fact that she said the her deputy minister, or her now her former deputy minister, uh, spoke to her chief of staff after the, I think after the shuffle, and said that the next minister, the first conversation he was going to have with the prime minister was going to be over SNC, so therefore he needed to get up to speed pretty quickly on that file because the prime minister still seemed to be intent and perhaps still is intent on getting a remediation deal for SNC-Lavalin. That is pretty damning stuff. So, you know, I would like to, uh, the, the, the former deputy minister is also being called back as a witness. I think that's going to be very interesting to find out, uh, did that conversation happen with the clerk of the Privy Council? And, you know, where's the government now? Does the government still want to try and ram through this deal? So we have the veiled threats. We have the uh, allegation that she made that there was uh, political concern about the liberal government in Quebec, uh, both federally and provincially, that political jobs were at stake. And then we have the concern that high-ranking officials in the PMO were suggesting that there was going to be interference one way or another, whether it was with Jody Wilson-Raybould's involvement or not. Which is the most damning allegation, do you think, out of all of those? Well, if they're if they're proven, then uh, beyond some kind of reasonable doubt, then they're all pretty damning. I mean, it does suggest that the prime minister was using his cabinet-making ability to override the prosecutorial prosecutorial independence of the attorney general, uh, which is a, a no-no. I mean, you are broaching obstruction of justice at that, at that point. So. You know, none of it reflects particularly well on the prime minister yet. I guess we, we've got, still got to find out, though, how much of it is actually true, and, and how, how much of it could be simply a misunderstanding. I mean, I think that the the point that Attorney General was, or the former Attorney General was making, was that this was repeated uh, pressure. You know, t- ten conversations with eleven people. Um, you know, you could misinterpret one or two of those, but how could you misinterpret that many? So it's, uh, it doesn't look good, particularly good on the Prime Minister's uh, advisors. particularly there was one suggestion that they have a, an informal chat with the Director of Public Prosecutions, which again, I think is, if it's not illegal, it's borderline. As a, this is an office that was set up uh, as an independent of parliament, reports to the attorney general, uh, and should have no political interference. And this was created by the, the Harper government, if I, I'm not mistaken, that uh, as a way to try and catch or potentially catch future instances of the sponsorship scandal. Right. I mean, it was it was part of the Accountability Act of 2006. And, you know, it was designed to stop political interference in judi- judicial decision-making. And, um, and it has been pretty successful in doing so right up until now. Now, 
Who else could we expect to hear from at committee? Uh, Michael Warnock is going to come back. Gerald Butts is supposed to testify this week. Is there anyone else that we expect that we'll hear from or that we could possibly hear from? Well, we will will hear from uh, Natalie Drouin, who was the Deputy Minister of Justice, still is. Um, I mean, there are plenty of other players here who were mentioned in Wilson-Raybould's testimony. Her Chief of Staff, for example. Uh, Ben Chin, who is the... uh, Chief of Staff to Bill Morneau, the Finance Minister. The two members of the Prime Minister's office, Matthew Bouchard and uh, Elder Marquez, who were both, uh, who had face-to-face meetings with Wilson Raybould, and they were the, the people who were saying that we could have the best policies in the world, but we do need to get re-elected. So whether, whether the committee keeps going, I mean, the, the committee is dominated by Liberals, and, and they may feel that this is getting far too close to home and uh, and it should be shut down. We may we may end up seeing that, but I think if they did, there would be a public outcry, and it's probably not advisable at this stage. Could this drive away voters come October? Do you think, or is it? In, are we far enough away from the election that if we don't see more fire where we're seeing smoke, that people forget about it? I don't think that people forget about it. I, I always compare it to a to a dam and, and the water rising behind the dam. And at some point, the dam bursts. And uh, I'm not sure we're at that stage, but this is a lot of water pouring in behind the dam right now. And, um, you know, I think it. people don't enter the polling booth thinking, right, I'm going to vote against Trudeau because of he wore a Sharwana in India or because of the Aga Khan or because of this particular scandal. But I think that they do accumulate. And... There's no doubt that the Liberal brand has been tarnished and that Trudeau's personal reputation has been sullied. I mean, this, you know, the sunny ways, open and transparent government. When he starts saying some of this sanctimonious stuff now, people just shake their head and go, like, how could I believe him when I, when I know some of the other stuff that's happened? And he's, you, if, if you'd ask people in October, November 2015, whether... Justin Trudeau was going to get re-elected with a majority. It would have been a shoo-in. People, you know, nine out of ten people would have said, "Of course he is." You know, this is the start of a dynasty. Mm-hmm. It's a family business, and he's probably going to be prime minister for until he hands the keys of twenty-four Sussex on to the next part member of the family who wants to be prime minister. It had that feel of uh, dynastic feel to it, um, you know, and particularly through the last two or three years when there was a. Uh, you know, the Conservatives were going through a leadership uh, review, so were the NDP. Neither of the the people who've been appointed look particularly well-known or attractive to many Canadians. But you've got to think now, this is a very, this is going to be a tight election. And would anybody be at all surprised if at the end he lost it because of some of this stuff? I think it's a, uh, I mean, I think if you were asking me to bet right now, I would say it's probably a, a minority government. Who benefits more from it, do you think? Is it Andrew Shearer and the Conservatives? Or is it Jagmeet Singh and the NDP? I know that the Conservatives fared well back in 2004 and into 2006 by trying to paint themselves as the opposite of the scandal-plagued liberals. Uh, could Andrew Scheer see similar benefit uh, this election? Well, I, I, you know, it would not surprise me if we saw a rerun of 20, uh, 2004, which I remember well. Um, you know, sponsorship was, was in the news every day. Um, Harper was... You know, the, the, the merger of the Conservative parties had just happened in 2003. 
still wasn't a, a well-known entity across the country and wasn't particularly liked or trusted. And but the but the liberals people had, had almost had it with them, so they decided they would rein in the liberals by giving them a, a minority and take a closer look at Harper, and then the next time around they voted for Harper. It would not surprise me if something similar mm. happened here that uh, that we went to a minority situation. People took a longer look at Shear over the next couple of years, and then, you know, minorities don't last that long. It's not a four-year cycle. It's more likely to be two. And then we have another election again. That would seem to me an entirely plausible scenario right now. Um, have, the, have the opposition leaders overplayed their hand in this at all, do you think, so far? Well, I think calling for Trudeau's resignation is a bit of an overreach. I mean, it's just not going to happen unless there's a massive split in the Liberal caucus. And there is no sign of that at the moment, by the way. I mean, I've talked to a lot of Liberals. They are mad at her, Judy Wilson-Raybould, because they feel they're endangering their jobs. I mean, they're, um, it's, it, it's hard for me to see what her end game is. If she's still going to run as a Liberal, which she says she is, and she cares deeply about Indigenous issues, if this government loses, which it may well do now because of her, then no government is going to take a close look at Indigenous issues for the next generation. So it's slightly puzzling to me what she's trying to get out of this, other than the fact that I think she is principled and that she does feel she was wronged. But the idea that uh, the Liberal Party is going to split and rend itself asunder and, and overturn Trudeau, I don't think that's going to happen. And, and short of that, I don't see him resigning. So, you know, the problem with Shears asking for the resignation is there's nowhere to go now. That's kind of like your nuclear option, and he's already used it. One last question. In the short term, to try and get the public back on side or get a handle on things, what does the PM have to do now over the next month or two to try and right the ship here? Talk about something completely different. I mean, I noticed that they're starting to run radio ads on climate change. Uh, I think they need to get back onto their positive, hopeful narrative that, that won them the election in the first place. I think it's going to be very hard to do because, as I said, I think when he, whenever he starts getting sanctimonious and sunny ways, people, you know, it's now like the, the light has come on and they, they realize that they were had in the first instance. So it's going to be a, a tough sell. But, um, but, you know, people still have a residual liking for Trudeau. They will kind of want him to do well. It's hard to believe that – I think that when people get in the polling booth and they look at the other two guys, they still – want this guy to do well because he's somewhere they still feel he's this hopeful, smiley, truth guy. But it's going to be a hard sell and they're going to have to spend the next six months touting all the things they did well, touting all the positives, the child benefit, the number of people they lifted out of poverty, all the things that they can sell. I mean, they do have the power of the being an incumbent government behind them and that is worth a lot of points in their polls. You can do a lot when you've got when you control the agenda and you control uh, the government's purse strings. We've got a budget coming up, in which uh, this is a government that doesn't particularly care how much money it spends. I suspect it's going to spend more than it more than it planned. To. Well, I guess we'll watch to see what happens with this going forward. John, thanks very much for your time. Okay. Further fallout from this scandal hit Ottawa on Monday. Jane Philpott, president of the Treasury Board and Minister for Digital Government, announced she was resigning from Cabinet, specifically referencing the SNC-Lavalin file as the reason for her departure. 
In a statement, she stated that she could no longer uphold the Convention of Cabinet Solidarity. She said, and I quote, A minister must always be prepared to defend other ministers publicly and must speak in support of the government and its policies. Given this convention and the current circumstances, it is untenable for me to continue to serve as cabinet minister. Unfortunately, the evidence of efforts by politicians and or officials to pressure the former attorney general to intervene in the criminal case involving SNC-Lavalin and the evidence as to the content of those efforts have raised serious concerns for me. Those concerns have been augmented by the views expressed by my constituents and other Canadians. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Technical support this episode from Stuart Thompson in Ottawa. Thanks to my guest, John Iveson. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.